Well, amen, amen. If you've got a Bible, if you would, Matthew chapter 5 is where we begin. Uh, if you're a guest here at Eastwood, I should introduce myself. My name is Will. I'm the youth and music guy here at South Campus, so this isn't my typical role that I have, but it is for today. I want to thank my friend Greg uh, for uh, leading. If you had a chance to get to know Greg Swack, he's one of the coolest people on the planet, I think. Probably can attribute that to his mom. So his mom as well, and uh, we, Greg's like a Swiss Army knife. He's really good at everything, you know, kind of makes you sick, but we're grateful for him. And as I like to say, and I say often, he's who I want to be when I grow up. And I'm not sure when I'm going to grow up, but when I do, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And so I'm grateful for Greg and his friendship and his ministry, and many of you know him and love him like I do. And if you don't get a chance, have had a chance to meet him, uh, you need to. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be worth the time for sure. Um, the last couple of weeks, I said I was going to be short. It's going to be a short sermon. Everybody's going to be really, really excited about a short sermon. We're really short in the first service. I'm going to try to trim it up, and we're going to make this work. The, uh, the longest sermon ever recorded in the history of sermons was 60 hours and 31 minutes. Whew. I'm sure there was only one person watching. It was that guy's mother because... Uh, Ooh, that'd be tough. Uh, it took him, took him uh, six months, six months to write the transcript for it. Can, can you believe? Oh, my goodness, that'd be awful. The shortest sermon, however, which is where you and I can probably, you know, hang together, was Roy De Lamont was a chaplain at Payne College in Georgia. He preached the shortest sermon in the college's history. The topic that he was given was, what does Christ answer when we ask, Lord, what's in religion for me? The complete Content of a sermon was one word, nothing, nothing. He explained later that the one-word sermon was meant for people brought up on the give me, give me gospel. Kind of sounds like a culture in which we live in today. However, he did ask, how long did it take you to prepare that sermon? And he said, 20 years, 20 years to prepare that sermon. So sermon prep was tough, 20 years, and he whittled it all down into one word, and that was nothing. Now, I would like to say that I've, like, we're gonna, I'm going to be shorter. I don't, I don't know. I'm definitely going to be longer than one word and uh, definitely shorter than 60 hours. Uh, so um, buckle your seatbelts, pin your ears back. Let's rock and roll. You ready? How many of y'all have those parents that say have weird sayings? My parents had weird sayings grow up. Your, parent, your parents probably, you probably have turned into like me. You end up turning into your parents, and you say the weird sayings back to your parents. There were all those weird sayings like, you know, don't eat, um, don't eat watermelon seeds because they'll grow up in your belly or apple seeds or something like that. And I was just like, surely not. Don't, chew, don't swallow gum. It's going to take seven years to digest, those types of things. Um, don't make that face. If you keep making that face, it's going to stick. We've all, we've all done that. Some of y'all are thinking Kardashians. I know what you're thinking. Um, it's stuck. Um, one of my favorites is you are what you eat. You are what you eat. If I was what I eat... I would be gummy bears and lemonade. That is what I like. It's my favorite things in the world, gummy bears and lemonades. If I, had to be, if I had to be sent off someplace with nothing but those two things, I'd be happy for a while. Like, that's, that's kind of my life. You are what you eat was what our parents say. We know that, you know, obviously nutrition and health and all those things, a lot of that is true. What we consume, obviously, um, uh, there's, a, there's a physical outcome to that. And so we want to we live a healthy life. We want to eat well and do all those types of things. But we, but. We are what we eat, yes, in a lot of ways we are, unless you're a, a teenage boy who can consume absolutely everything at my house, 
right? Now, it doesn't matter what we have at my house. We can consume it, and he doesn't gain a, a pound, like nothing. It makes me sick. It makes me sick. I look at it, and I'm like, well, there's five pounds. That's great. That's kind of what happens at our house. We are what we eat. The same thing, that's, that's, our, that's our physical life. That's a representation of our physical life. But one of the things also when we talk about our spiritual life is, is not we're not, we are what we eat. We are what we seek. We are what we seek. So when you take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, and if you allow me to, I just want to simply walk through the verse. That's all we're going to do. No sermon points. If you looked at the back of your sermon thing, you go, well, man, it's going to be real quick. Well, then you'd have a sermon point on this thing. Like, I just want to walk through it with you. And so if you would, join me as I read. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, this is Jesus talking now. He's at the Sermon on the Mount. Jeremy um, hit on the Sermon on the Mount last week. I'm hitting on at the beginning of it. He was kind of in the middle. I'm at the beginning. And Jesus has just done a couple big things. Uh, his earthly ministry has just begun at the first, um, just a couple chapters before, he's baptized. And then immediately after baptism, he's gone out into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan. Right after that happens, he begins to preach and teach and heal people and do all this really cool stuff. And when that happens, when those cool things happen, crowds gather. And so Jesus all of a sudden gained uh, a tremendous following on Twitter after his, beginning, um, after beginning his ministry. And so he says this out of the gate as we start the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now let's take a look at the word blessed real quick. Blessed is mentioned four, or 543 times in the Bible. That's a pretty significant number of times. And it's important to see that over and over and over again throughout Scripture, there, God is blessing people. He's either blessing people or he's saying that those who do these things will be blessed. And so here we have blessed. The, the idea is is one who, so if somebody is blessed, is one who is in the world, yet independent of the world. In the world, but not of it. That sounds like another scripture reference. His satisfaction, the blessed one, their satisfaction comes from God and not from favorable circumstances. We are in the hashtag blessed season, about ready to enter it. If you don't know what that is, that means everybody's about ready to go to the beach, Next weekend, everybody's going to be at the beach. They're going to be taking their pictures. They're going to be sitting with their umbrella. They're going to be kids. They're going to be playing on the beach. They're going to have this, this panoramic shot of all of Gulf Shores or Panama City or wherever it is, the Bahamas. It's going to be there. It's going to, you're going to be scrolling through Facebook, flipping through Facebook, and all you're going to see are these pictures, and it's going to say at the bottom, hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed. That's what it's going to be. It's that type of year. And you know and I know both what they're saying. Look where I'm at. Look where you're not. And if you're like me, you're like, oh, look, the Smiths, they're at the beach again. That's great. I hope they get stung by a jellyfish. That's what you're thinking because I'm thinking it. But those are favorable circumstances. Yes, those are blessings. Like, we get it. Like, it's just a joke. Like, it's, it's cool to be able to do those things, and it's fun. But that's not the, the biblical idea of what it means to be blessed. To be blessed is not favorable circumstances at all. It comes from satisfaction from God. Satisfaction from God. It's in who God is, not where you are. The word blessed means divine favor, of holding special regard. Divine favor. Take a look in Genesis chapter 5, verse 2. The word blessed, it indicates this strong personal relationship. 
If you were to ask my kids who their favorite, who, who my favorite kid is, and they'll tell you, they'll tell you who my favorite kid is. They'll tell, they'll tell you one word, but it's wrong. I tell my kids almost every day that I can that, I, that each one of them are my favorite. Each one of my kids are my favorite. I hope when, when, when I die and they stand up and, and they tell stories about me that they sit there and go, my name is Abby Smith my, and I was my dad's favorite. I want every single one of them to say that because favoritism has something to do with a personal relationship. Whether that is a, whether that is a sport, whether that is a certain person, your best friend, your favorite friend, it all has something to do with a relationship. How close are argue to this particular sport, to this particular team, to this particular person. It's all about relationship. And so this idea of what it means to be blessed, divine favor, holding in special regard, it indicates a strong personal relationship. Matthew, or Genesis chapter 5 verse 2 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made them in his likeness, in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. God created something. It was a personal relationship, and what did he do? He blessed them. He blessed them. The psalmist says in uh, Psalm 512, for you, Bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So blessed isn't a result of our position, but rather a promise from God. It is divine favor. It is a blessing, divine favor upon those who hunger and thirst. So the aforementioned hashtag, hashtag blessed life pales in comparison pales in, in, in comparison to what is in store for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what does it mean to hunger and thirst? Hunger and thirst is an action. It's an action step. It means to seek, to pursue. What it means to be hungry, this, this idea of hunger and thirst, it's a, it's a painful desire for something. About eight years ago, I had the opportunity to go to China, lead a team to China to go do some mission work over there, and, and it was fun. I took, about, I took uh, six college students with me, which is hashtag blessing if you uh, want to keep the theme running. That, that was a trip for a lot of reasons. It was wonderful, but it was taking 12 college kids overseas was a trip. Took 12, took, I'm sorry, six college kids over for a trip. And so we sat there, we were, we were, we were backpacking through some, some areas of China and we, we knew a buddy who was there, a, a Chinese, that, a, a Chinese man who was, uh, we had been, we'd had a couple other trips before that we were sharing the gospel with. He was really, really close to coming to know Jesus. And, but one of the, 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 the Chinese people are extremely hospitable. So we're walking through China and we, we meet our guy, the guy, his name was, we called him Mark. Uh, and so it's a great Chinese name. Uh, his name was Mong actually, but we gave him a Bible name when he became a believer. So has, not to ruin the story for you, but he became a Christian. And so he, we gave him the name Mark as we communicated back and forth. And so um, Mark had us into his home, and they're extremely hospitable, and it was great. But he wakes us up one morning, and he says, hey, listen, what would you guys think about going on a short hike? We're like, I like short hikes. I love hiking. It's great. And so it was a really short hike. By the end of it, we'd only gone maybe two miles. But a mile and three-quarters of it was straight uphill. And when I mean straight uphill, like you're having to grab trees to pull yourself up the hill. It was awful. We went through this thing. I had these six college kids with me. They're like, yes, backpacking through China and rock on. Only three of them, you know, made it through. 
The rest of them turned and went the other way. Like, it was a brutal. We hiked up. We get to the top of this hill. We're walking through poppy fields. And I'm sitting there going, don't touch anything. Don't touch anything. We don't want this to like. And they're like, no, no, don't touch anything. This is crazy. We're walking. We finally get to the top of this mountain where they, where they have these trees where they, where they do some peaches. And, and it's, a, it's a peach production plant type of a thing. And we get there. We are thirsty. because It was a short hike. Short hike. We didn't take water. I didn't bring a granola bar. Nothing. I didn't do nothing. And we get to the top of this thing, and we are, the, the three guys that are with me, so four of us in total, but three other college students that were with me, we're, we, are, we are thirsty, and we are tired, and we are starving. We get to the top of the mountain, and they bring us out these bowls. They bring us out four bowls of water. And if you know anything about going to a third world country, and in especially remote areas of even uh, a lot of the world, you don't drink the water. You don't. Don't drink it. We had nothing. And we're all sitting, look at this. We don't want to be rude, but we also don't want to get sick. So where's the balance here? And I remember, I kid you not, I never prayed so hard for a bowl of water in my life. We prayed for this bowl of water. We prayed for it. And I look, I look at my friend, Blake was next to me and Lucas was next to me. And I just look at him and I had my friend, another guy across the way from me, uh, across the table. We look at this stuff and we're going, what do we do? And I was like, oh, I'm just going to drink it. I can't, I can't do it. And I remember sitting there praying for the water. We prayed for it, all four of us together. And we drank this water. Then they come out, and we're just like, man, I hope, oh, please, nothing. Please, I hope this trip doesn't end poorly. And then they bring out this, this other thing that was, that was main, of mainly water, and it was, we, we asked what it was that we were eating, that they were feeding us, and they said, well, this is gruel. I'm not sure if you ever know what gruel is, but gruel is like, uh, and their, their form of it was, was rice, um, was kind of like a rice soup, cold rice soup, but it was mainly water. And it was rice that was in there. And so we were starving. We didn't know what to do. We ate all of that gruel. And we prayed to God that we would not die in China. That is what we did. To know what it's like to hunger and thirst is not something that you and I have ever really had to experience in life. We live in America. We don't have to deal with that. But to hunger and thirst means this painful desire for something. And when, we, when, when, when Jesus here is saying, blessed are those who painfully desire righteousness. It's an action. It's something that must be a pursuit. Genesis chapter 25. If you have your Bible, you can hang a left. Genesis chapter 25. Um, you remember this story. Story of Jacob and Esau. And you're familiar with the story. I don't want to give a whole lot of context um, to it. But if you look at the end of chapter 27, I'm sorry, 25, end of chapter 25, um, verse 27. If you're not familiar with the story, two brothers really didn't get along. Um, one's older, one's younger. One was a daddy's boy, one was a mama's boy. Uh, and verse 27 happens. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, and Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came from the field and he was exhausted. Some of your versions will say famished or starving. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. 
So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Think about this, a birthright. A birthright is this um, is this thing that, that, is, that is gifted by a father to the eldest son in the, in the Old Testament. And the birthright came with a lot of cool stuff. Like, is it, I'm the oldest. Any oldest in here? Yep. You don't want to make us mad, younger siblings. Uh, the oldest boy, he got three quarters, depending on how many kids, but he got three quarters, uh, one third, three quarters of the, the, the entire um, financial uh, standing ground that they had, all the money that they had. He got three quarters of it. He got to judge what went on in the family. You got to tell him what to do. I'm really good at telling my brother what to do. At least I was. I'll tell you that story in a second. Um, he, he also, I mean, so he had, he had, uh, he had all, all the land, I mean, all the wealth, all that stuff. Um, but the, the thing most that, that comes along with the birthright, with, with the birthright is the blessing of God. God would bless, he would bless the oldest son. And that was a huge responsibility, right? Huge responsibility that he had. And you have this birthright there. And you had Jacob and Esau at this moment where Esau had something that Jacob wanted. And Jacob had something that Esau wanted. I'm the oldest kid. I don't ever need my little brother. Never did. I do now. But I never had to, my, I didn't need anything from my little brother. He was my little brother. Little brother. Didn't need him at all. I got, all the, I got a job first, so I had all the money I could possibly want. Uh, well, not really, but, you know, as a teenager, I was like, look at all this money. Um, and then I, I had the vehicle first. I didn't have to, my brother needed rides for me. I didn't need a ride for my brother. I needed nothing from my little brother. Now, here's an instance in Scripture where all of a sudden the older brother needed something from the younger brother. And Jacob sees his opportunity, and he says, listen, I'll tell you what. All you have to do, I'll give you some soup, but all you have to do is some of your birthright. A bowl of stew for a birthright. Now, who in their right mind would trade, would make that trade, right? Who would do that? Who would trade a bowl of stew for a birthright? Would you give up the financial freedom, the authority you have over all of your family, and the blessing of God for a bowl of stew? Who on earth would take that deal? And let's be honest with each other. You and I both in this room tonight, uh, this morning, who would take that deal? You would. And I would. We all would. Who would give up that? We all would, depending what's in that bowl of stew. For some of you, that bowl there is money, fame, things. I said the first service, I like guitars and motorcycles. Like, that's, would I give up that birthright for that bowl of stew? We, you know, we would. We would. It just depends on what is in the bowl. If it was the right bowl of stew, you would and I would. We see it every day in the world of preachers. Preachers give up their ministries because they see something, they're chasing something that never is going to satisfy them. Esau had an appetite. He got his belly full and then he 
turned around and he gave up his birthright, four hours later, he's going to be hungry again because food never fully satisfies. Things of this world never fully satisfied. All the money that Esau would have had would have never fully satisfied because he, in all reality, was hunger. He, he was hungry and he was thirsty for the things that would never, ever satisfy him. Because appetites are powerful and they are never fully and finally satisfied. So our appetite, this idea of hunger and thirst, this appetite, this, it's, it's the pursuit. Hunger and thirst is the pursuit of righteousness, that Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who pursue righteousness. In Psalm, again, in Psalm 512, you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as with a shield. So what is righteousness? Righteousness or to be righteous is defined as the act of doing what God requires. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible all, what, at all, what does the, the Bible require of us? The Bible requires uh, of those who want to, to, who, who want to spend um, or want to be in the presence of God, the Bible requires perfection. How do you get to perfection? You get to perfection by living according to the law. It's there for you to live. And so you've got to do all these things. Do all these things. Keep doing all these things. Read the first five books of the Bible and try to do all that stuff. Good luck. God requires perfection to be with him. You have to be righteous. Righteousness is free from guilt or sin and the quality of being right in the eyes of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 21 but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How do you become righteous? You become, you become, righteousness, you become righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And how do you have faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe? In Romans 8, there is... Uh, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What does it mean to be righteous? It means to live a godly life, to seek after godliness. We become righteous, as Romans said, we become righteous through God in faith in Jesus Christ. So we, the Bible, uh, Jesus says here is that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for this idea of perfection. It's a perfection that we cannot attain on our own, that can only be attained through coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that when we come to faith in Christ, we are clothed in righteousness. That when we stand before God, he doesn't see our filthy rags, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, he says, yes, come in, my good and faithful servant, because I want to spend time with you, because you are adorned in righteousness. You are dressed. Why? Because you 
come to faith in Christ and you repent of your sin and you trust him for salvation. We get to the very end of the, of the, the chapter, or I'm sorry, of the verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. When Bev and I first started dating, um, we're trying to get to know each other, and so, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you, know, you know, a lot of dates, and you're, you're, you're asking a lot of questions and just trying to um, get to know uh, each other. And one of the things that Bev told me when we first started dating was she really liked musicals, loved musicals. And I was like, okay, she's a, she was in them in high school, and, and she's, she's definitely the artsy and crafty person. And, and uh, um, she'd asked me if I'd ever watched a musical. And I got to thinking, I was like, yeah, 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 I've watched a musical. He's like, well, which one have you seen? Well, I said, well, I've only seen one, one musical, uh, but I would have to say it's my favorite. And she's like, well, tell me what that is. And I said, well, it's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is my favorite musical, still is today. There are a couple close ones, but I love Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. She was like, it's not a musical. And so we sat down and watched it. And she begrudgingly had to say later, it's like, yeah, right, that is kind of a musical. But it is a musical. So love it. I love the original one, not the weird one, but the original one. I like the Gene Wilder one, um, uh, not the new one. Uh, but, the, but you remember, Willie Walker in the Chocolate Factory, there are two characters I want you to think about of the kids. The kids go, uh, on the, they, they get about six kids or so who go on this tour of the Chocolate Factory. Now, remember, my favorite thing in the world, like if I had to be stranded anywhere, is going to be gummy bears and lemonade, right? So going to the Chocolate Factory in the world that was created there, I was just like, this is the best thing in the world. Like, I would love it. I would just be, I'd be frolicking through all of the candy, just eating as I want. Like, it was like, it was heaven for me as a 10-year-old kid watching that show. Loved it. Loved it. But you remember the two people there. You remember Augustus Gloop? Do you remember Augustus? Augustus was, um, he, he loved to eat. That was his deal. And you remember that in there, he was the first kid to go away on the tour because he went in and he saw everything that was around him. He saw all the stuff that he could do, that he could touch, that he could eat. Everything's edible. The only thing they didn't want him to do was to scoop in or to drink out of the river because the river was made of chocolate. And so he gets over there and he begins to scoop and eat to where he lost his balance, fell in, got sucked out, and who knows what happened to him. Nobody knows what happened. But his, his desire, what he was hunger and hungry and thirsty for, was something that was never going to satisfy. It was never going to satisfy. Then you remember Veruca Salt. Remember her? She, drove me, she was the worst one in my opinion. I was, it drove me nuts. Veruca Salt, she had everything she wanted. Her dad bought her everything. My kids are like, yes, why can't we be like that? Well, sorry, ain't going to happen. So good luck. You remember there was, one, there was one point they were in, I can't remember if they were gooses or geeses or whatever, geeses, geese. They were, they were in there and they had the, the golden eggs, whatever that thing is, right? Laying the golden eggs. And she wanted one. And she told her dad she wanted a, a golden goose laying egg, egg laying goose, whatever. And so she, would, she went there, and she was whining, and she was just annoying. I'll get out, and the dad was trying to buy it off of Willy Wonka. They weren't sold. It couldn't happen. And then she does her song or whatever, and then she's leaping and dancing, and she stands up, and then all of a sudden, at the end of the song, she falls through, and she was a bad egg as they went. But what she had, she had everything she could possibly want, but she always wanted more. Why? Because she was never satisfied with what it was that she had. Satisfied is the result of the pursuit. It's the result of the hungering and the thirsting. The fruit of that labor is satisfied. If you're like me, you like to eat. I like to eat. 
Um, it's probably one of my favorite uh, hobbies and pastime. And, and, and you guys have all experienced this. You've gone to a meal where you've eaten a meal, and it's just kind of hit the spot, as my uh, family would say growing up. It just hit the spot. We're not talking about Thanksgiving dinner. Like when you eat and you, you stand up and you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to, i got to get to the couch quick. I, should, I made some terrible decisions. That's, that's not the type of thing that we're talking about. That's not hit the spot. We're talking about the stuff that when you eat it, you're just like, I'm content. Like, I feel great. I don't feel, like, I don't feel sick like I need to go throw up because I've eaten too much. I don't, I'm, st- I'm not hungry. It just hit that perfect spot. That's the idea of what it means to be satisfied. Listen to what, Psalm 107. The psalmist writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached the city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So what does it mean to be satisfied? It means to be content. Remember our text, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be content. So what does this mean outside the walls? What does this mean for us moving forward as we step outside these walls here in just a few minutes and and move on to the next thing? Like, Jesus is telling us to to do things. Blessed are those who do these things. Why would we not live those out? Why would we not strive for righteousness? Why would we not strive to, to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God. The application for this entire thing is that the pursuit, the hunger, the, the hungering and the thirsting for righteousness must be modeled. It must be lived out. If you're a parent, it has to be lived out in front of your kids. If you're a pastor, it has to be lived out in front of the congregation. If you are a banker, it has to be um, lived out in front of your coworkers. If you're a salesman, the people that you go visit has to be lived out. Husbands, it has to be modeled. Wives, it has to be modeled. Hunger and thirsting for righteousness because life crumbles when we're not striving for righteousness. Why? Because we'll never be satisfied. You've been around people who are never satisfied. I've known people in my life who are never satisfied. It's hard to be around them. Nothing's ever good enough. They want something else. They buy it. It never fully satisfies. They get rid of it. They buy something else. Nothing fully satisfies. Why? Why does that? Because we're not meant to be satisfied by anything other than Jesus. But we live our lives focused and striving to do so many things and, 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 and to, to buy so many things or to live a particular life. And it never fully and finally satisfies us. That's why Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the promise there is you will be satisfied. If we seek God, we will be satisfied. We'll be content because we are what we seek, y'all. This is ultimately our legacy. Done several funerals. Um, been to several funerals. Done a couple of them in my life. Greg's done a thousand of them, and, 
And if you were to ask anybody who's either been to one or whatever, and maybe you have or you've preached some, one of the things that happens is people give up and they begin to give testimony about the person who has passed away. This is our, this is our legacy. Because what they do is they stand up and they tell you about all the things that, you've, uh, that you liked, you enjoyed. He really liked motorcycles. He loved playing guitars. He loved fishing. He loved sports. He loved Jesus. It's our legacy. It's our legacy. We hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. You think about Esau. You think about a story, about the story of Esau. You know the last time that he's mentioned? The last time that Esau is mentioned in Scripture, this is his legacy, y'all, is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. He says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and cause trouble, and, and by it uh, many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. When we read about Esau in Scripture, the last thing we hear about him is that. That's his legacy. He gave up every, everything that he had, everything that was promised to him. He gave up for a bowl of stew. The word unholy, in other words, profane or secular. He gave up the things of God for the things of this world. May that never be said about us. Isaiah 55 1 through 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Think about that. We spend hours and years and decades on laboring for those things that do not satisfy. Because, see, the reason they don't satisfy is because we desire the thing that can't be earned. It's the thing that we can't get on our own. It's the thing that we can't work for. The only thing that will truly, truly satisfy us is righteousness. And that righteousness can only be obtained through Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, my, I beg of you before you leave these walls to come to faith in Christ. You've probably sat in these seats for years and, you've, and, and you hear the same thing over and over again. Maybe you've got your hand on the back of the seat and you just don't ever want to walk down forward. You don't have to come down forward. You need to repent of your sin and trust Jesus and be clothed in his righteousness. Seek first, seek first his righteousness, his righteousness, hunger and thirst for that because you truly will be satisfied. Christian, I challenge each of us today to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not for the things of the world, but rather the things of God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God because you can't get there on your own. You can't do it. It's impossible. Not going to happen. You cannot do good things, enough good things to get to Jesus. That's why he came the righteous for the unrighteous. Romans 8.8 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please God.
My prayer today for you, for Christian number one, is that we seek righteousness. We hunger and thirst for it because we are what we seek. And if you're in here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I pray that you would come to know him, that you would be clothed in his righteousness. Because you can never come to Christ on your own.